Lexicult is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Man invented the machine, and now the machine has invented man. God the Father is a dynamo, and God the Son a talking radio, and God the Holy Ghost is gas that keeps it all going. And men have perforce to be little dynamos and little talking radios, and the human spirit is so much gas keep it all going. Man invented the machine, and now the machine has invented man. That is Man and the Machine by D.H. Lawrence. Hello and welcome to Luxacult. This is the podcast where we gleefully taunt the mundane, butcher the Latin and most other languages, and we also discuss a variety of occult, esoteric, and adjacent topics, exploring the intersections of magic, art, science, philosophy, technology, and so much more. It's occultism for everyone. I'm your host, Lux Estrada, and if you're hearing the sound of my voice, that means that magic and this show, for that matter, are for you if you want them. There are a lot of different ways to be more free, and using magic or making space for a spiritual practice in your life can be one of them. As always, I don't speak for anybody but myself. Others can, will, and should disagree with me sometimes. How will we ever learn anything if we were all in agreement on all things at all times after all? And as those who attempt to be reasonable should be willing to do, I am willing to revise my opinions based on new evidence. All right, so to get into an awesome conversation I had with Eric J. Millar, who shares about a very fun creative project, the book Wombat, which is now available. Despite the title, Wombat, which stands for Waste of Money, Brains, and Time, it's a really cool collection of creative curiosity that contains the work gathered from the last year and ranges from sculptural comics to surreal collages to Islamic writing, experiments, and more. Sort of many books within one. Eric and I will get into the different aspects of the project. We'll meet Ramblin' and Tooth and hear about what it might mean to be an operator in the machine as well as sharing some outlooks about magic and the creative process and stuff. I've really enjoyed reading some of Eric's thoughts about magic and art and other stuff on his blog, No Gods But My Own. He's not making many entries anymore, but one of the most recent ones, at least when this episode comes out, is a reflection on his oracle, the Disruption Generator, which is turning five this year. It's a really cool exploration of the experience of making something and then kind of watching it take life in the world. Eric, by the way, is the one who made the spectacular cover art for Fuck Around and Find Out Part 2, the We the Hollowed and Green Mushroom Project digital mixtape. Check the show notes or Instagram for that if you haven't seen it. It's some very cool collage work. The mixtape was such a fun project to put together. And if you haven't checked it out yet, please do yourself a favor and get weird with it. Big thanks to everybody who contributed tracks. There's a link to that in the show notes, and we're going to hear some of those in today's episode. For a very cool episode within the episode, I spoke with Mademoiselle Vendredi about her recent shift into a new line of work as a magician for hire and what that's been like. 
She shares about how there are a lot of different things to keep in mind if one wants to do that type of work. The importance of being organized, as well as maintaining magical hygiene and other stuff. You can hear Mademoiselle Vendredi and I talk about lots of other fun things in episode 57, Love and Other Dangerous Magics, with Mademoiselle Vendredi and The Ancestral Now with Ramon Castellanos. It was really awesome to catch up and see how this new line of work has been going for her and what types of things her clients sometimes ask for. Have you ever thought about doing magic for people as a profession? Hearing from somebody who has recently made this shift might provide a lot of good context. Before we get any further into things here, I'd like to say thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me and my very rad guests here on this show. As I'm fond of saying, time is of course one of the few zero-sum games we play, so I do appreciate you spending some of yours here with us on this show. As a pretty introverted person, I don't use social media very much. It's kind of a lot. I'm not on there every day or anything like that. That certainly doesn't mean that I don't want to hear from you all. I'm beyond lucky to have such amazing listeners, collaborators, cohorts, co-conspirators, and whatnot. I always welcome people's thoughts, questions, comments, suggestions, or arcane revelations. You can reach me at luxoccultpod at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram at luxoccultpod. I'll give a few shout-outs to people later on in the listener mail and shout-out segment. If you like the show and the other work I've been getting into, you can support it on Patreon. If you do so, you can take a bibliomancy break with me, and there are no tiers or levels or whatever, so give as you will. Buy Me a Coffee is an option for those who wish to show their support with a one-time donation. Thank you so much to everybody who is already doing so. Your support makes this show possible by allowing me to cover the expenses associated with making it thereby justifying to myself the time that I spend. I appreciate the opportunity to be making this thing and to have the resources necessary to reach y'all today. So many thanks to the support which is making this possible. All right, I'm excited to share the track that Eric J. Millar contributed to Fuck Around and Find Out Part 2, the We the Hollowed and Green Mushroom Project digital mixtape, as well as to share the great conversation Eric and I had. Stay tuned for the episode within the episode to hear Mademoiselle Vendredi's fascinating perspectives about working as a magician for hire, as well as about a pop magic ritual we'll be conducting soon on the Green Machine Discord server. We have come to chew bubblegum and kick ass. (laughs) I'm pretty into the idea of sunglasses magic. More on that to come. Also, as I said, play a couple tracks from Fuck Around and Find Out Part 2. For now, Let's get into my chat with Eric J. Millar. Prepare yourselves for wombat, magic, and the machine, and waterfalls of meat as we enjoy Thought Infestation by Eric J. Millar. Cheers. Thank you. 
All right. Well, my guest today is Eric J. Millar. Eric, how's it going? It's going all right. It's going all right. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. Pretty well. Been insanely busy, but uh, all the stuff that I'm really stoked about, so I can't complain there at all. Yeah, I saw that you've been uh, traveling. Yeah, yeah, I've been doing a lot of traveling, uh, just kind of catching up with some family, seeing some friends, uh, exploring and everything, and working on some projects. I'm about to uh, put out a album here. By the time this episode comes out, the album should be out. And knock on wood, of course, <laughs> that's the plan. Yeah, that's uh, so awesome. yeah, all kinds of shit. <laughs> but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about your stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm really stoked to talk about Wombar. Am I saying that right? Uh, wombat. Wombat. Like, How did I like get Wombar? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Unless the copy you got had a misspelling and I didn't know about it. <laughs> I'm like deeply dyslexic. So this type of thing happens to me all the time. I'm always like making these really embarrassing spelling gaffes with people's names and like, oh, it's it's kind of a nightmare. So that's probably, we could just chalk it up to that, I'm guessing. <laughs> that works. So will you tell me a little bit about process that went into making, there's it's several different like components of this project. Can you maybe talk a little bit about like the over, overall structure of it? Well, the, uh, the structure of one. Uh, Wombat. It's kind of a collection of works from like the last eight months or so. I was getting kind of bored with the process of just like writing a column in my uh, newsletter every couple weeks. So I kind of shut that down and decided to focus on art again for a while because I had kind of lost track of that. And I decided to explore the the book. It's, it's just basically just a, a lot of artistic exploration where like some parts are acemic writing, some parts are sculpture, some parts are blackout poetry, some of it's collage. It's just kind of a collection of whatever was popping in my head at the time. Yeah, very uh, cool. I mean, a big part of it is actually kind of the the corpse of what was going to be the fourth volume of No Gods But My Own. But I decided that leaving it as a trilogy kind of worked better for the project. Okay. I mean, that's just about the gist of it. I mean, the process is kind of different for every section. It's it's so varied that every section had a way different process. So there's a lot of different things that I like about it. I really like the short stories um, mm -hmm. about the, the, the sculptures. I'm trying to remember what their names are here. Uh, Ramblin' and Toof. Ramblin' and Toof, yes. So can you tell me a little bit about these characters? Uh, well, Ramblin' is kind of like a little wizard who's just kind of exploring he's he's a very forgetful like kind of magical being who's kind of wandering a wilderness with his little pet named tooth which is just basically like a walking mouth snake that's basically what all pets are right <laughs> yeah, basically <Mouth>. basically <laughs> Yeah, and he just kind of keeps running into uh, unusual situations. Yeah, I love it. How did you come upon this character? How how was Two created and and rambling? I was getting pretty bored with drawing, so I took out some clay and rambling was just kind of what came out. Back when I was younger, I drew a lot of big-hatted wizards. It kind of made sense that I would come back to a big-hatted wizard at some point. Fuck yeah, fuck yeah, I love it. It's very it's very fun and spooky. Kind of, it's got a kind of like cute and also spooky aesthetic that I appreciate for sure. Oh yeah, that's kind of what I was aiming for. There's a lot of things in here that are appreciative of the sort of like finding art maybe in like through happenstance or appreciating what one encounters like randomly and stuff. There's a lot of 
I see a lot of like, you know, influence from like the whole like cut up thing and like, you know, the combination of different styles and genres. I'm curious about how you produced the images from the section where, let's see, it's called, I think, a, a gallery of desperate parts, of disparate parts. Um, now, are these all illustrations or was there some kind of a collage component to these or? Oh, they're all collage. Okay. Uh, almost, un- almost none of that is stuff that I drew. Oh, um, okay, cool. I wasn't sure because it's, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't put it past you because I know you're a very talented <laughs> artist, so I really wasn't sure. Yeah, I made I made those collages when I was working on volume three of uh, No Gods But My Own, um, an assemblage of disparate parts. And I had a problem with the presentation of the illustrations in that book, which that's what all of those, all of the uh, collages in that are the illustrations from the third no gods, but, no gods but my own volume. But I wanted to give them room to breathe, print them on like nice paper. But yeah, for that, I just found old illustrations and cut them up. And it's uh, heavily influenced by, I can't remember the, uh, I can't remember the artist off the top of my head right now. He was, uh, he was one of the um, Dadaist artists. I can't remember his name right now though. But yeah, just cut up illustrations turned into really strange collages. All right. Fuck yeah. Yeah, they're really, really cool. Definitely. Where can people find this in case they want to like take a look at it as they're listening? Um, is it available I, digitally? It is not available digitally, but I have shared almost everything that's in the book, either on We The Hollowed or on my Instagram. Okay. So yeah, go check out Eric's Instagram and uh, you can see some of this cool shit. So there's a part in here where we're making studies of the flight paths of flies that was difficult to say (laughs) flight interpretations you tell me a little bit about uh where this idea came from uh this is one of the oldest ideas in the book (laughs) it's kind of classic right (laughs) yeah it's about 20 years old it's like a 20 year old idea where i was just sitting at home really high watching flies and I was trying to figure out what they were doing and at some point I got a bunch of materials and I was going to make a comic of it and then I just moved on it kind of was the uh it was it was a casualty of my move out to Portland in the end I came back to it after not having anything to put on We the Hollowed for a while I just went screw it I'll uh I'll bring this back and see how it goes and I'm pretty happy with the results on that one. Like, it kind of went better than I had expected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really like it. I think there's a lot of different layers in it. I There's some satirical elements that I find really fun. Um, maybe even just about, like, the scientific pursuit in some forms. <laughs> Is it okay if I read one of them so people have some context? Oh, Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So this is uh, this is a subject, Alan, which is a fly again for people that are confused. Okay, so our subject today is Alan. Subject Alan is outspoken and gregarious, both characteristics that are in full display in the style and substance of this performance. So here's there's an illustration of the uh, flight path of the fly. It's a uh, you know a little bit chaotic and it's a lot lot more stuff going on than some of the other ones so here here's the uh, the notes that we're t- we've taken about this one so it's obsessive aggressive electric these are just three of the words that could be used to describe the form of subject allen turgid expletive and phallic are three more words as are 
ogled, moist, and rapid. I mustn't forget upset, zebra, armor, traffic, gelatinous, or juice either. I have so many more words. I have books full of words. I could just go on forever. <laughs> so like, I, <laughs> I think what's fun about this for me is that there is this kind of collision of subject and object that we're seeing here. Like we're supposedly like objectively studying this fly for, we're not quite sure why. It's important yeah. though for science. Yeah, for science, for science. <laughs> for science, obviously. And uh, when, when we kind of step back and look at the notes that has been taken here, I, I think that we're seeing a lot more of, of the narrator than than the fly here. And that that's readily apparent in, in this, uh, in this, I think that that's really fun. So. Fuck yeah. Yeah, I, I I think that was the funnest part of that is just kind of trying to embody the note taker throughout the entire series. Because I tried to have a consistent character throughout. Like it was just this person who was obsessing over flies and it was just kind of slowly driving them nuts. <laughs> because there's there's no order to the, to the flight pattern of flies. They just kind of go wherever. I don't think they plan anything. But I think it's like... I, when people talk about brownie in motion, flies usually come into the conversation. I'm not like a fly expert, but I mean, yeah, it, it certainly seems that way. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was just kind of a scientist trying to find order in chaos. Yeah, I've been having a lot of conversations recently. I'm taking a couple of different classes and stuff where this is coming up, but like this idea of, you know, who is the arbiter of truth in the world? If it's in this sort of like sphere of society it's you know it's like the church or science like the scientific establishment or the government perhaps right like if we think about the whole ufo discussion like the whole mm -hmm. like disclosure thing what's kind of interesting about the whole you know scenario is that like there's this kind of implied assumption there that the government gets to be the ones to tell us what's real and what's not fucking real <laughs> like, oh so, yeah i don't know it's interesting yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not sure if anybody really has a grasp on truth. It's really a subjective thing. Truth kind of is adaptable to whatever the situation is, depending on different authorities. So it's kind of hard to have an authority. Absolutely. But I mean, in a lot of ways, I guess that's kind of where art comes in. Like in a weird way, art is truth because no matter what you see it and you kind of interpret it to however you want to interpret it. So it becomes a kind of a gauge of truth on its own. Hmm. Yeah, there's the idea that art sort of exists as an interaction between the the viewer and the artist and the thing which is created and yeah, to you and so, yeah, I love that. Yeah, it kind of becomes the third body between the work, the uh, the viewer. Mm -hmm. So, can we talk a little bit about excerpts from the Asemic notebook? Am I saying that right? Asemic. It's either Asemic or Asemic. I've never Asemic. really been okay. Sure. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, yeah, that one, it was, I've always kind of been obsessed with acemic writing, which is kind of a uh, a form of script where a, a person just kind of lets the pen flow and they don't really write anything. They're just kind of making shapes that kind of resemble language, but it's not really language. I can't think of any like big name artists or like any names that even I know that, that practice it at this point. But I've always loved the way it looked, so I started just a notebook where I, I did it for about like four or five months. And that is kind of the highlights of that. 
I think I did about 60 pages before I kind of couldn't figure out where to go with it anymore. So kind of is sitting in a closet right now. Hell yeah. I I... yeah. You know, it reminds me of some of the stuff um, in Jan Fries's visual magic. There's mm-hmm. a lot of exercises that are kind of like along those lines. And yeah, it's, it's it looks super magical. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of like a personal secret language, really. I mean, if you meditate on it long enough, I'm sure you'll find some sort of meaning in it if you're doing it. I know I can see what I was thinking about when I was drawing it, but I don't know if the uh, audience will see it as the same thing. But I can definitely see a, like my own personal expression within it. I mean, I think it's a practice that more people should honestly try. Yeah, fuck yeah. So if people are curious about doing that, are you down to talk a little bit about like how they could approach it? Yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, I could talk about how I approached it. Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, one can only speak for themselves. I mean, it was really just kind of, they're all kind of abstract ideas, really. I have one that was just tree roots, basically, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I have one where it's just like tree branches and it looks like a tree. I was basically just staring out a window and saying, what would it, what if a tree was language? Hmm. And like, there's one that looks like mountains and smoke coming off of it. And it, I basically was just kind of meditating on the idea of smoke signals as written language and how it could be used to express certain things. I mean, it's kind of holding an idea in your head and wondering what would this look like as language what would it sound like what would what would the the script look like for a for an abstract idea like what would yeah what would a tree look like in writing what would roots look like in writing can a maze be language it's just abstract thinking trying to put it into script and letting your hand go and i think that's probably the hardest part is the letting your hand go i think most people get crippled by the idea that they kind of can just draw whatever they want to draw and that's kind of the biggest hurdle, I think, probably in doing something like a scenic writing. Yeah, it sounds like you really have to be willing to surrender control. Yeah, yeah, that, that's basically it. It's uh, scenic le- writing is kind of the uh, the cousin of uh, I forgot the term where you uh, you write and don't think about it. Oh, automatic writing. Yeah, yeah, it's basically the cousin of automatic writing. It's just a bit more intentional. Oh yeah. It's definitely interesting. It goes into a lot of unusual uh, places. If you look it up online, there's a lot of databases of Islamic writing and really good examples out there. But yeah, if you just Google it, it's it's all over the place. You just kind of have to know where to look. Yeah, it's really interesting. It Things like that suggest to me, things like this, you know, this the idea that these shapes have a sort of universality to us in a way like that we can all understand as creatures or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's a sort of like meeting of the ideal, like the I, things in the, like the realm of ideas and, and things in the realm of like physicality, right? Like there's this interesting joining that happens mm-hmm. with something like this. And um, in math, there's like different ways of thinking about it. Like is math something that is like, it just exists in the world and we've discovered it. Or is it a system that we invented to describe things that we see in the world, right? Like there's just two different sort of like approaches of thinking. And right. I'm I'm kind of in, I'm honestly kind of in the camp where we're the ones that it in, invented it out of like, you know, cognitive metaphors and stuff like that, of like real world things. And I think things like this kind of support <laughs> that position. So yeah. um, 
I I love arguing about this stuff though. So if anybody listening wants to, you know, come at me with some mathematic idealist stuff, I'm into it. So yes. (laughs) Well, I mean, I mean, honestly, like nature doesn't count things. (laughs) Like not really. (laughs) Well, I mean, maybe that's an, uh, that's an interesting philosophical statement though, right? Well, who's nature? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I suppose, I suppose because humans are nature. So humans would. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, that's a tough one. That is it's a, a tough, tough one. one. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tough one. It's it's just like language, you know, did, is language something that just kind of happened or did we invent it to express something? Mm. Yeah, and it's I mean it seems like other types of animals might have language like or something that I mean I don't really know. It's probably comes down to semantics, but there verbal communication that takes place between members of other species and stuff that that has meaning you know like that you know that these verbalizations hold meaning so that seems like language so oh for sure for sure and well it's it's one of those weird things like i have cats like my my family we have three cats and if you if you look up the science on cats they say cats don't talk to each other not with meows the meow is is reserved for basically human our cats meow at each other all the time did they learn to meow at each other because they meow at us or are scientists studying the wrong, the cats at the wrong time? Cause like, yeah, our cats meow at each other. Now they may not have at the start, but they do now. Mm-hmm. Did humans make that happen? Or was it just like a natural outreach of their language because it was necessary or are they even talking or are they just making noises at each other? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's interesting. I mean, and designing experiments to test this is really challenging, right? It's really hard for us to get outside of our own perspective. I mean, some would say impossible, right? So as yeah. humans, we can only look at things through our own, you know, lens. So, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, we don't know what a cat is thinking. We can we can guess what a cat is thinking. It's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, I assume that they probably have similar motivations as what I would have, you know, like being a fellow mammal <laughs> i enjoy uh you know eating delicious food and resting and being safe and you know all of this stuff yeah, so. yeah. the basics are all there <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely so how long have you been uh doing this asymic writing uh i think the first time i tried it was probably about 20 years ago that's when i like accidentally googled something and it brought me to asymic writing and I just got really, really kind of obsessed with it for a while. And every once in a while, I pull it out. Like I did a book. It's in the it's in the uh, outlet omnibus uh, where I basically made like a field guide for an alien world where all of the writing in it is essentially ischemic writing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was really cool. That was Otherworld. Yeah, Otherworld. I, I made that book like 10 years ago. It's hard for me to remember those titles as well you've got a lot of stuff out there (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i got quite a bit (laughs) (laughs) it's awesome i really want to talk about the operator's code and the idea of the machine and all of that stuff but before we do are you interested in taking a bibliomancy break sure all right fuck yeah hey luxa what do you have there it looks like a tattered old discord server Oh, this old thing? It's pretty beat up. But if I do this... Sweet! Now that you peeled off the outer bits, it looks fresh as hell. We should call it the green machine. Awesome! 
I fucking hate it! That's okay. It should function alright, but it would probably work better if we had more people. Yeah, we have an awesome crew of chaos, occultists, socialists, witches, and weirdos, but there's always room for more. Absolutely. If you'd like to take part in any of our many chats, rituals, workshops, clubs, and more, hit me up and I will send you a link. You can reach me at luxacultpod at gmail.com or at luxacultpod on Instagram. And remember, resist. Greetings, it's me, Luxa from the future. Thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're going to be returning for more of my chat with Eric J. Millar in a little bit here, as well as hearing that bibliomancy break. But now it's time for a very cool episode within the episode. Mademoiselle Vendredi is a professional magician who works with the demons and the djinn. We'll hear some great and practical thoughts about conducting magic for other people and different ways of approaching that, as well as what types of things her clients sometimes ask for. There's a sort of silly saying, and I apologize that I can't remember where I first heard it, but it's that in many instances, magic is sort of classically about getting laid, getting paid, or getting even. And it's obviously much more complicated than all that, but maybe it's not such a silly phrase after all if we look at the history of magic and how love and curse work was super popular with people like the ancient Greeks. We found hundreds and hundreds of like curse tablets and other things like that, which as far as we know, were sort of mass-produced and sold by various temples back in the day. When Mademoiselle Vendredi and I spoke before in episode 57, Love and Other Dangerous Magics, you can find a link to that in the show notes, we talked a little bit about love magic and curse work. When it comes to her clients and their needs, as you can imagine, things are complicated, and it was cool to hear about some of the ways that that plays out. Before we get into it here, I will remind you that Mademoiselle Vendredi is not a hit woman. <laughs> which was an alternate title for this episode. All right, cheers. All right, well, my guest today, once again, is Mademoiselle Vendredi. How's it going? Thank you very much for having me back on uh, your amazing podcast, Luxa. Uh, I'm doing, I'm doing very well. A lot of changes, uh, as we just discussed before we came on, on live. So um, yeah, I'm ready to get stuck into it. Fantastic! Yeah, I'm so excited to hear about these changes and about what your experiences have been like. So you let me know that you have kind of shifted gears a little bit and recently have been working as a magician for hire. And so I'm really curious to hear about what that shift was like and what your experiences have been so far, like doing this line of work. Well, in order to to sort of give you the, the bigger picture here, I began in earnest at the beginning of January. But as you can imagine, there was a lot of there was definitely a lot of humming and hurrying and there was a lot of sort of self-reflection on whether this was something I wanted to do as my to be honest, as my primary source of income. Um, obviously, people know me for my servitor workshops, my sigil workshops, all of my workshops. But at the time when I was doing those, I was up until that point still working uh, a tenured position in quote unquote, a normal job. Um, but uh, yeah, the process of coming about whether I should do it or not, I went back and forth on it, as you can imagine, Luxa, quite a lot. Quite a few times I was like, one day I'd be like, yep, this is, this is what I need to be doing. This is what I want to offer. I feel I have 
something unique to offer clients aside from the workshops. And then there'd be other days, honestly, Luxa, where I'd be talking to a few members of my coven and, and I'd just be like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm not ready for this. And mm -hmm. it really was, and it still is in my first year, will almost be my first year in January, a learning curve. You know, there's, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes Aside from the obvious, like doing readings for clients and uh, mentorship and uh, holding consultations and obviously doing ritual for hire, there's an awful lot of stuff which I need to do behind the scenes to make sure that I, I mean, for one thing, as you can probably sympathize here, I am now a huge fan of, um, what do they call them, uh, Excel spreadsheets so I can see <laughs> when I'm speaking to them and I've, I've got all these like new apps downloaded that help me stay on track with because I also run my Ferris club as you know um, and I have to make sure that I've got certain content recorded and and my limited editing skills which is basically nothing but you know tidy up the sound a bit and I have to make sure that those are ready to go I've also got to balance that with new inquiries that are coming in and like I said to someone fairly recently who inquired about a reading and some subsequent client work. This is just a one woman show. You know, it's just me. There's no secretary. There's, there's no like PR manager that's doing my posts. It's a lot of work. So yeah. It's that's a lot cool. of work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes total sense. And I think that what you're saying too about, you know, the need to kind of step outside of one's comfort zone and kind of grow to, in order to do this work there is a learning curve and sometimes the only way to learn it is by doing it and so you really do have to be brave enough to kind of step out there and so I think that's really cool and inspirational that you're you know doing that for yourself okay yeah. yeah oh oh, absolutely but but as you I'm sure well know it was scary as hell you know I mean that first time when I got uh, my very first client who happened to be absolutely lovely I couldn't have asked for a, a better first client it was still scary because obviously I've been doing this for a long time but and, and also obviously what running workshops up until that point at the beginning of this year but to actually mentor a student it does require an awful lot of emotional investment uh, on my part but also equally I have to be able to disconnect does that make sense where you know sure, yeah. I've got to be able to say at the end of the day or at the end of the mentorship or at the end of the ritual work I still have uh, a life to get on with and I found that if I'm very honest that was a big struggle at the beginning the first couple of months because also this is something else which obviously I'd considered in the past but it did become a bit more of an issue and that is that people were hitting me up and messaging me for consults and card readings and ritual work from all over the globe, from Australia and New Zealand, all across the globe to the UK, a couple of subcontinent clients, and also mainly a, lot, a huge number of people from the States, but not just from one particular state, of course. So, you know, there were so many time zones to take into consideration. And for that reason, my phone literally would not stop messaging me you know what I mean because mm -hmm. obviously when I was asleep at night and in whatever time zone I happened to be in at the time was always you know a different time zone for somebody else and of course you can't really maintain a typical nine to five routine like you can't I mean I suppose I could just shut off my phone and you know not look at my messages but I don't feel I would be giving I wouldn't be giving a well-rounded service, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So 
yeah, definitely scheduling conflicts, time zones. I am forever on this site called Times Time and Date Converter, trying to juggle about you know three different time zones at once, and that has been one of the major learning curves because you know nine o'clock for me is fine, but when I'm having to do a ritual consultation at like three in the morning because my client is all the way over in San Francisco, you know, it's like. Mm-hmm. It's I've 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 come to work with it, and I now how to I know now how to manage my time effectively. But it was a serious struggle at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And honestly, I can really relate with the time zone thing. I've had a lot of snafus. Some of the, my guests on this show have have known this because I've messed it up in the past. And um, apologies and thank you for your patience there. And um, yes, like finding some kind of a, a system. You know, these systems I think are are so important and. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, this this kind of a thing, these services, there is such a huge personal aspect to it. But it is still, as you're noting, like it is still a business too. So you almost have to kind of learn a whole new skill set to be able to like keep yourself organized and all of that stuff. Even if what you're actually doing is very like out there and woo, there still needs to be that grounded element of it just to keep you organized and sane. And um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. I mean, I'm just now, I just opened up my world clock app on my phone and I've got, so I've got all these time zones and I've got, you know, I've got London, Melbourne, Montreal, Pittsburgh. I had someone recently tune in from Jakarta, Istanbul, Los Angeles. And it just goes on. And, you know, like you said, I don't know how people did it pre-phone apps. I mean, I guess you just had to use like a physical calendar, but thankfully we do have these. Slide rules? I don't know. (laughs) Exactly, you know, but but I find it for someone like me that's I'm very much a type A person when it comes to timing. That's why I always send out messages to people, especially if they're doing a consult with me. I'll always give them like time markers, like oh, this is your one hour call and this is your five minute call. I'm just about to log on. It's just as much for my clients as it is for me because if I get it wrong and I'm you know like you said you know you you have a few snafus and you're like oh shit I'm in the wrong time zone at least then I've kind of given them a chance to look at their message and be like oh no we're not meeting until such and such a time and I'm like yep you're right I'm sorry absolutely on a different time zone right now so yeah yeah you know getting that confirmation I think you mentioned something else earlier that was really helpful too sort of understanding where these personal versus professional boundaries are and like you know really kind of sussing that out for yourself and finding like where those need to be is something that has been a part of my work as well and so that makes total sense right so I'm curious like what if you don't mind sharing like what like what has the kind of shift been like you know how what what have some of these experiences been like I'm curious with all these people calling you from all over the place I'm guessing there must have been some uh interesting stuff that you've gotten into well there is there's definitely been uh yeah a lot of very interesting requests in consults for various things I mean you've got your typical you know love work you've got money work business success career these are you that's usually the sort of the the trifecta I suppose you could call Mm -hmm. it the the triangle of usual um, (laughs) questions that people ask in a consult usually people want either one of those three but I've definitely in fact more recently in the last couple of months and I, I know this is not a humble brag or anything but I'm I, I'm okay with talking about it here because you know I'm okay with it and I'm not obviously mentioning any of my clients by name but 
over the last couple of months, especially since the summer, my name seems to have spread within the sex work industry, particularly in certain cities in the States. I've had more than a couple of people say that they heard my name from a friend who did some work with me. And then I, I seem to be I seem to be the se- no, sorry. I seem to be the magician that sex workers are currently going to, not the other way around. <laughs> okay, right on. <laughs> and also, you know, keeping it real, I've I've worked with I've worked with one or two minor politicians. That's also been interesting because, of course, the needs again are, even though they're they're predictable, it always depends on their particular circumstances. So what I mean by that is, yeah. even though most politicians. You know, their emphasis is on gaining support, public public likability, yeah. make them seem like the perfect candidate, blah, yada. It always depends on their specific circumstances, like, well, mm. various things, like how did they get the job and, and how, you know, how much can I work with? Uh, those have been interesting cases. And not that this is, of course, an advertisement for it, because... Officially, I don't condone anything illegal, of course, in case anybody we was hearing. We do, yes, no, we never do on this show. <laughs> you know, never, never. But in the last, uh, I would say, couple of months, I have been hit up with, again, it again, it really, I mean, I'm only hearing it directly from someone who could, could easily just be lying. But a couple of people who've hit me up and asked me for, to do, they're maybe, maybe they're involved in some sort of, illegal activity and they need some magical solutions so, uh, very often they're involved in sort of turf wars with rival gangs I had that sort of query come up a couple of months ago and they needed magic to they wanted magic to protect themselves um, so yeah I've I've seen in, in just my 12 11 12 months of, of doing this I've definitely seen a lot of very interesting clients and very unique, some very unique situations. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. So mm. I'm guessing that what this starts out with is, as you said, like you really assessing the situation that the client is in and figuring out what the best solution is rather than just kind of trying to do like a one size fits all. Like you're really kind of, you know, looking at the circumstances, which to me, my way of thinking is like very, very important. And so that, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. Beyond a doubt. When So the way I do it is it's just like, I mean, to use the analogy of going to the doctor before you actually see the doctor, you, especially if it's a specialist, you very often have a consultation to see if that doctor will take on your case. So mm -hmm. if someone hits me up on DM on my Instagram and they say, I have this, this, and this that I need sorted out with magic. Uh, I require your expertise. I will say, okay, book in a consult with me. Let's discuss uh, over usually about 45 minutes, sometimes to an hour. And let's just talk about what the situation is. And in that consult, I will try to gather as much information as possible about the person. I will also do some divination to see possible routes, possible ways of handling their situation. And then I will present all of that information to the client. And then whatever they decide to do with that is their business. So they may then decide to say, you know what, I could do a lot of this work by myself, but I need the clarity. Or in most cases, they will say, you know what, I don't have the time, I don't have the energy, I don't have the ritual items, or I don't, oh, just very honestly, they don't have the experience. So they will say, can you perform it on my behalf? And then of course, we sort of enter in sort of a, an agreement, a contract. And um, 
And then basically I will talk them through various things that I can do for them. And then I will advise what I think is best. So for example, if I think that evoking one or two demons to help them get what they desire is enough, that's what I will recommend, right? And Mm -hmm. if I then think that it's, and through divination, of course, if I feel that it's quite a complex situation, which as we all know, magic doesn't, you know, one spell, one ritual doesn't, you know, change an entire situation. So of course you would need some sort of layered work. And depending on how many players are involved in the situation, there may be, for example, an ex, uh, there may be family involved, there may be a current partner that needs mollifying. That type of work may go on for quite a while to tackle every single angle. And like I said, I will just recommend what I think should be done. I will obviously wait for their approval, let them go away and think about it. I always tell clients to go away and think about it. And if they want, go and get another opinion from somebody else. Because, you know, mm-hmm. I, I I don't, I, I'm not in direct competition with anybody. I feel that there are, you know, I'm not the only person doing this. And if they feel that they get, they can get a better result from somebody else and, you know, so be it. But most again, not humble bragging, but most clients after a couple of days come back or sometimes even the same day and they just come back and they say, look, I would like you to take on my case. And then of course we take it from there. So it's very much, you know, back and forth. We discuss possible ways of doing things. Do they like this? Do they have any particular leaning towards any spiritual category? You know, it's very much to, to use what you said, the phrase you said, there is never a one size fits all. Even for a simple money spell or love ritual, there's never one spell or ritual for every single client. It's impossible. That makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, it it, it does obviously mean that I am, at any one time I could be speaking to maybe three clients, and that's even before we've moved to the ritual stage. So, you know, just back and forth, seeing what works for them, what they like, and of course, the added time zone, the dreaded time zone. So sometimes I'll write (laughs) message and then the person won't get back to me until the next day for me. But for them, it's like, you know, just a couple of hours later. They woke up and it was there. Yeah, (laughs) totally. And that's, again, to, to sort of run with this theme, that has really been a learning curve for me because, you know, people want solutions. And I suppose if we're gonna, you know, use the term, that is my business. I offer magical solutions to people's problems you know and and of course if I feel that I can't the work for them or if divination proves that or demonstrates that that this isn't the moment to be doing any sort of ritual work or maybe the client needs to do a little bit of self-reflection or or whatever Mm. I will always tell them because you know if I don't then I run the risk of doing work that could still work but has a much less chance of being successful do you know what I mean so oh yeah absolutely I mean yeah that makes total sense and you know sometimes it's just not a good fit right like whether it's the timing the person the circumstances you know some other thing you know it's uh sometimes that's just not gonna work for that right like I've I've definitely seen that before or like you know yeah and, and there's you know oftentimes a kind of uh maybe instinct or intuition that can come into that too for me which I assume comes from some kind of like analysis that's happening behind the scenes or whatever but yeah it makes total sense 
Absolutely. I mean, of course, you know, I'm performing my own sort of analysis, making sure that this client, I mean, when clients sign up to do anything with me, whether it's just a simple consult or a reading, I do set some terms and conditions. And obviously, even if the client agrees to the terms and conditions, I'm always sort of, you know, just watching and listening and trying to assess if this person is of sound mind and they know what they're doing, they know what they Mm -hmm. want. But yeah, and to that end, as long as that person is feels justified in what they want, they really thought about it, I will basically take on any sort of case. There I don't really have a I don't really have at this point any cases that I wouldn't take on, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. All depends on circumstances and stuff. And so I, I know that people might ask this because I've heard the question come up in other instances about doing work for others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard people ask like you when one is doing work for other people, how does one kind of bring up the willpower to do it in a similar way as if you were doing it for yourself? Like, how do you sort of abstract that desire um, to to be for your clients rather than yourself? That is such a good question, um, because I do actually get that a lot. And I'm going to use a, a fairly unsavory analogy here. Or <laughs> How good. <laughs> um, I'm gonna, it's a pretty unsavory one, because of course, it's not very pleasant. But let's think of it this way. If you are a professional hitman or hit woman, you know, you're, you are hired and contracted to do one thing. I'm not a hitman. I'm not a hit woman. I want to say that. <laughs> I want to say it in case some just this one sentence and they're like, hmm, Mademoiselle Vondry is a hit woman. Wow. Okay. I wonder how much she costs. No, that's not, not what she said. <laughs> not what I said. Although, you know, get in touch. We'll talk. No, I'm, that is not, <laughs> not No. But what I mean to say is that when a hit hit man or woman presumably is hired to do a job, they have no emotional connection, at least from what I understand and what what we all see on television and movies and all that, you know, they have no connection to the target. So they just do their job because they have the skills to do it. So in that way, when I do work for my clients, but okay, so there are two emotional states that one can actually get into. And I'll digress for a second and use the example, another example of professional actors. So the first technique is to completely empathize. Now, of course, I've got my own, you know, because I've lived a life and I'm still living my life. So I have life experiences. If someone comes to me and says, my boyfriend, my ex, he cheated on me with uh, 10 women, never told me. And now I've got syphilis. I don't know about the syphilis part, but I can definitely empathize because Sometime in my past that has happened. I've had a cheating ex. So for me, it's easier to do the work from that point of view. Mm -hmm. But the other state, which is far more common for me to do, is to do it from from a mental state of complete detachment. So whether I am working something a little bit more nefarious for a client, or if I'm doing some heavy protection, or or even aggressive protection, or if I'm helping a client with some money issues... I'm not going, I'm not just going through the motions, of course, but I'm detached from the outcome. So in a way, it's, Mm -hmm. I'm the perfect, in a way, I'm a, my, my, my job, my, what I do is perfect for clients because whereas a client might literally be too close emotionally to the outcome, I don't know this person from Adam or from Eve in person. So, you know, I can do the job without getting emotionally hung up on whether it's going to happen or not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
So, I mean, it really does depend on what the job is, what they're asking me to do, how long I need to spend time doing several rituals maybe to to help the client. But essentially, I'm doing it from a place, usually I'm doing it from a place of detachment. I, I sympathize because, of course, you know, I listen to them talk about their situation. But when I come to actually do the ritual work, I do it from a place of detachment emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I believe because, and, and there are a few other factors, you know, because I've been doing this for a fair, well, okay, let's just say I've been doing it for a long time. I have faith and trust because I've done it for myself many times before. That is the faith that I use when I'm working the ritual. Because I know, like, for example, um, I've got a community ritual coming up next month in a couple of weeks, actually, for uh, the Goetic Demon Boone or Boone. Bime, however you want to pronounce their name. And I've worked with Bime for many years. I've always had consistently great results from them financially. And so doing a community ritual means I can tap into that. The remembering that I've already had a lot of great results from them. And so Mm. I channel that feeling when I work each client's petition in the community ritual. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, this idea of not lusting for results or like this kind of entering this like neither, neither detachment like that or the idea of really getting emotionally into it. Like these are both ways of doing magic. And so whichever way you can get to for the client that that totally tracks. That's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. And and again, I suppose I had to I, I definitely had to learn that as I was starting out. And yeah, you know, that, that's why I say it's a, it's, it's a highly emotional job because once I finish, even though I'm doing it from a sense of detachment, that's still an emotional response. I have to have absolute trust and faith that the magic works. Mm-hmm. But then once the work is done, once the ritual is done, I have to completely detach from the result. And because I don't know this person in person, in real life, it's easier to do. It's not necessarily you know, just a snap of my fingers and that's it. I'm, I don't even, you know, I don't care. It's, but it's easier, you know, because, well, because I don't know them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now I'm curious, if it were me, I would probably, as a matter of course, start like maybe amping up my kind of magical hygiene if I was doing this type of work, because I feel like I would be introducing myself to lots of other people's kind of otherworldly friends that I might not meet otherwise. And, you know, that could just get really crowded, right? Like, and so I'm curious if that's something that has come up for you or that you've thought about in terms of like how to kind of keep what's going on with your own practice, at least maybe not detached, but at least, you know, doing its own thing and not being interfered with by this work that you're doing for your clients. That is, that is actually something, yeah, that's actually a really good question. So I do have specific things that I do every day, like, for example, daily banishings. I'll do one at least um, in the morning and perhaps one again in the evening if I've been doing a lot of heavy work that day. I do have certain artificial spirits that have been created by myself to temper some of the effects and lessen the effect of the work leading over into my personal life. Yeah. You've made things for that. Okay, Rad. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, 
again, you know, pe- most people know me now for, or most people know me originally for my servitor workshops. Mm-hmm. So creating a servitor, an artificial spirit that is intentionally meant to lessen any sort of bleed over from my professional work and the energies that I engage with and clients' energies as well into my personal life. I've created a few of those. There are various other methods, which I won't actually go into. Um, but yeah, it's it's a case of just being spiritually hygienic without overdoing it and you know basically taking it to the point of paranoia because you you don't want to be getting OCD washing your hands a million times a day when it's not necessarily more hygienic to do that so yes (laughs) absolutely you don't want to you know that is one thing again that I learned you know you don't need to overdo it but a healthy more than healthy amount of protection in place especially because I'm doing this as a as a as a service um, like you said, I'm interacting with various people's uh, energies and their situations and their own uh, life forces, their own, uh, sometimes even the, I'm asked to uh, remedy a situation where somebody has maybe worked a spirit or evoked a spirit the wrong way, or maybe things have just got out of hand. And so, of course, to be able to do that, I have to make sure that I am myself a tower of protection, as it were, you know, that I have my armor up and that I am well protected. So yeah. Yeah, totally. There's a lot of that that goes into it. Hell yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this interesting information. Is there anything that you would like to discuss or uh, mention that I haven't asked you about? Well, not really. I mean, if people want to, if people are interested, they can obviously always send me a message on uh, Instagram. I am running some workshops. Oh, may I mention my workshops? Oh, yes, please do. I was going to say, I when we first met, it was in, in, and we were talking about time zones earlier. So I thought this was kind of funny. Like, it for me, it was like four in the morning. But I was like, I'm definitely getting up to like, go to this cool demon bowl workshop. And although I was very tired, <laughs> it was totally worth it. I had a great time. And um, yeah, yeah, the it's... information that you presented made total sense is very straightforward. And I appreciated that approach. Like, I don't like to have a lot of extra fluff. I just want to get the info that's usable. And so yeah, absolutely. That's right. Yeah, I remember that. Of course, that's how we that's how we initially started speaking. Mm-hmm. So yes, I've got that demonic BMA uh, community ritual coming up on the 9th. I've still got a few places if people are interested, they can just they'll find the information on my Instagram. Everything is on my Instagram at the moment. That's the only place I really put up a lot of information. And what's the Instagram handle for folks? And I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. Yeah, it is Mademoiselle V. So Instagram.com forward slash Mademoiselle V. So people can find me there. Oh, in the next big workshop is at the end of February. It's on a weekend. Uh, I think it's on a Saturday. And it is the gin, the second gin summoning workshop. So the first one went off really well this summer. It was the first time doing it. There was a whole PDF attachment. It, it was originally billed for three hours, but we ended up going for four hours because of a lot of this material was extremely new, even to a, a few people who joined up, who signed up, who were already, they weren't novice occultists, mm-hmm. but they, even for them, they had to sort of, there was a lot of extra time discussing names and how to pronounce things correctly and all that. So that's mm-hmm. coming up in February. I still have a few places left for that. And then the only other big thing that's happening is next year in August, I'm running the second summer workshop or summer course, whatever you want to call it. Because the first one was 
again this year went really well. I learned a few things in terms of managing time, making sure people uh, were had enough time to complete a few tasks for me, and it ended up being so much fun. So yeah, that will be happening next August, and it will go for about eight weeks. There'll be eight one and a half modules. Uh, and it will all be through Zoom. I keep the numbers really small so that uh, everybody gets my full attention. Yeah. Oh, oh, one right, more right, thing. Cool. Sorry, one more okay. thing. No. <laughs> I just remembered now. Um, <laughs> for the first time ever, I am offering something which I came up with myself. It's called my presumption powder for all your wishing needs. And that will be coming out. It'll be, it'll be available from January. So that is a special recipe of powder. Most of the ingredients come from my uh, home region in the Middle East. So there's that added factor. And basically it's powder which can be used when manifesting goals. And of course, there'll be a whole list of instructions, how to use it. Uh, Yeah, so that's coming out in January. Well, that's very exciting. I actually, I love the, uh, that's a very catchy name, presumption powder for all of your wishing needs. I'm a, my mind is already creating like labels for this packaging. <laughs> it's great. Um, so just real quick, um, if if one were to purchase some powder like this, what are a few examples of, because um, powders are something that I like to use in my practice sometimes, and there's a lot of creative ways that you can use them. Could you maybe throw out a couple ideas of how this presumption powder might be applied? Absolutely. So obviously, of course, people have been interested. So they've been asking me, so I've got an answer ready uh, to go. The way I use this presumption powder and then the way I've been using it for a couple of years now. In fact, it's a powder which I first started playing around with when I was still in high school, believe it or not. And over the years, I've just tweaked it. I've added things. I've taken things out. I've worked it in several different ways. So the first and most obvious... Yeah, the first and most obvious way to use it would be to um, wear it in a sachet. Oh, sorry, use it like, for example, in a little sachet bag. Uh, you can just literally just wear it in a little bag in your pocket. You can roll it onto candles so you can melt the wax a little bit and then roll it and then burn the candles over um, petition papers or anything else. You can burn it at your altar. You can also uh, use it as some light incense. So it can be, I usually burn it over like self-lighting charcoal discs, which you can get really cheap on Amazon. You can also use it to stuff dolls, poppets. You can also use it in petition paper itself. So you can sprinkle a little bit of it after you've written a petition, fold, uh, sprinkle a little bit on the paper, fold it up, and then do what you'd normally do with that petition paper, either burn it or uh, keep it somewhere hidden. I like to simply get it out and take a little pinch when it's a particularly blustery day. I'll make a wish using the idea of law of assumption, uh, imagining that my result has already, already come to pass and I will simply make a wish and then blow the powder into the wind And uh, yeah, that's how I like to do it. You can also bathe in it. So it is possible to actually um, put it in the bath with you. Not too much, but just a little bit. The only thing I will say is you cannot ingest it. It is not edible in any way, shape or form. You can't inhale it. Just don't Don't put it. Don't eat the magic powder. (laughs) No, please don't. That seems wise. (laughs) Don't do that because, um, well, I will give many, many warnings not to do that. So if you do end up doing that, it is on you. 
But um, yeah, and uh, the title itself came about, again, um, I was discussing it with uh, a few of my Coven members and they were helping me sort of come up with a, a phrase that sounded right. And I don't know, it, the idea of presumption, you know, the idea that you presume something as if mm-hmm. it's already happened. And that is when your wish comes true. So that's why I called it presumption powder. I fucking love it. It's great. Hell yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's going to be good. And so uh, if anybody's interested in purchasing, obviously they just need to get in touch with me. It won't be available until I would say the probably second week, maybe third week of, of January. That's when I'll start it's shipping. It's possible out. this conversation will not be out until then anyway. So that's perfect. There we go. Okay. Well, there we go. So yes, that will be available from January onwards. All right. Fantastic. Well, Mademoiselle Laundry, excuse me, I, my French is absolutely atrocious and I have studied it. It's very embarrassing. Apologies. No. Um, where can people find your work? Instagram, you mentioned. Um, is there anywhere else they can uh, look for you? Um, well, I do have my Ferris Club, which is a members only group online. So um, that is at a website called buymeacoffee.com. And obviously, I can give you the link for that. And that is a members only club. And on there, I actually post up a lot of behind the scenes work. I also do a lot of audio uploads. I talk about a ton of different subjects. I talk about everything from love magic to glamour and illusions, sigils, demonic work, anything you name it, it's there. I recently did a little audio on how to give excellent divination readings. So I talked a little bit about um, my experiences growing up, how I got into card reading, and then I talk about some of my experiences. And then I talk about if if any of the uh, listeners on the group want to set up their own business, reading cards or being a, div- a for- not fortune teller, a, a reader, um, mm-hmm. then these are the steps that I did. And this is some of the advice. So it's, and it's a whole library. There are various, I also have thought forms and servitors of my own creation that are uploaded there for the members to use. So yeah, people can find me there, but my main uh, place where I post most often is on uh, Instagram. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. This has been fantastic as always, and I hope that you will come back in the future. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Thanks so much to Mademoiselle Vendredi for joining me and for sharing about what it's like to fill this sort of classic archetype of the magician for hire in this modern context. It's sort of humorous to me that even though we might be working with supernatural forces or powerful aspects of how consciousness functions or whatever we want to call magic, we might not be able to get away from things like Microsoft Excel. It's a good reminder that modern technology can be a useful ally in one's practice if that's something that makes sense to you and works for how you do things and the way that you think about them. I wanted to tell you some sad news. Unfortunately, the presumption powder that Mademoiselle Vendredi mentioned is sold out and she does not currently have plans to make any more. So I encourage you all to create your own version of this for yourselves. 
I've been playing around with a daily wish magic practice since Halloween of this last year. We each lit and blew out a birthday candle as part of our Pirates Revel ceremony that we conducted for the third anniversary of the Green Mushroom Project's founding. I've been lighting and blowing out this same candle since then, when I'm not like traveling or whatever, it lives on my altar in my workroom. It's getting down to the nub, but it's been a really cool practice that I think I might continue on with. Perhaps when it's time for a new candle, I'll add something new to the sigil flag I created for the Pirate's Revel too. Speaking with Mademoiselle Vendredi has inspired me to create some of my own wishing powder at some point. I'll have to come up with a different name than Presumption Powder. That's obviously taken. I like the idea of a powder that you can like blow at a candle as you make a wish and it can maybe like sparkle or whatever. I think a lot of types of like flour or maybe sugar would work as a base. This actually sounds like a fire hazard. I'll have to think about this some more. Probably don't do that. Don't forget to check out the show notes for a link to Mademoiselle Vendredi's Instagram where you can keep up with her work and what she has going on. We're going to be heading back to hear the rest of my conversation with Eric J. Millar, as well as getting into that bibliomancy break. But first, I wanted to share another track from Fuck Around and Find Out Part 2, The Green Mushroom Project, and We the Hollow Digital Mixtape. Stay tuned after the interview for news about a very fun pop magic ritual that we have coming up, as well as the project that it is attached to. For now, let's get back to my chat with Eric J. Millar and enjoy the track... WTF by Knife. Cheers. Witchcraft, like magic sorcery. To me, it's nothing but fairy tale mumbo jumbo. Tragic man sinking in sand, thickening and sickening and breaking himself. Melt away, swirl down the drain. Rain back down to congeal in the cell again. I'm a stale puddle, inactive and acrid. Perceptions inaccurate, brackish. Madness descending, don't tell them I welcome it. I'm milking it because I till my garden with blood. Flooded when my face gets hot. Hip to the plot and rip till I rot. Ripping the stock, trip trigger, bigger target in mind. Grind me down and storm me up. Can't hold me down, just throw me up. Roll around and feel like us. Then don't pick a stack to the quicksand sludge. Couldn't fill me up. 
Great. Well, Eric, welcome to the bibliomancy break. <laughs> Do you have a D4 and a D8? If not, that is okay. I have them here, but I don't have a question. I'll need you to supply that. Okay. I don't have dice, but I think I can come up with a question. All right. Um, fantastic. I think, am I on the right track with my current artistic project is a good question. All right. Are you on the right track with the right artistic project? Let me find out what text we will be consulting here. The Book of Mormon. <laughs> Let me oh, go boy. grab it. I will be right back. <laughs> All right. I have located this text, the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All right. From John Smith himself. <laughs> oh, where is that? I, know, I, I, I have a, a special place in my heart for uh, the Book of Mormon. Like I met some Mormons once and had a very interesting conversation. So I've met some more. I've met some Mormons too that were very lovely people. I am, you know, whatever works for people, right? So. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> <That's> exactly. Cool. <laughs> oh, Eris, is Eric on the right track artistically? They should do before they went down to their graves. They should do before they went down to their graves. Hmm. I'm going to say yes, then. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that as a yes. Yeah, I'm getting... Yeah, like, I mean, you're while you're alive, you got to make art and... Uh, yep. yep, just keep doing. Got to do it before I die. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, do you have any thoughts about, you know, this divination or divination in general? Or do you have an artistic divinatory practice that you involve yourself in or anything like that? I don't really have an artistic uh, divination practice anymore. I spend a lot of time working with artistic divination and I kind of burn myself out on it. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I don't really kind of mess with divination anymore. I don't know. I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of just go with the flow anymore. But oh, it was yeah. it was definitely a fun thing to meditate on for about five years. So, in the process of doing this type of work, do you think that you learned more about the world around you from divining, or about yourself and your own way of like looking at things? A little bit of both, because in a weird way, divination kind of made me feel more like there was some sort of works beneath what we see because a lot of a lot of divination feels a little too true to to just be something that happens by chance i've seen a lot of people do a lot of work with like the disruption generator where it's spot on and i don't know how that happens it doesn't seem like it should make sense but it does in a way it kind of gave me a deeper sense of connection with the world and a deeper sense of connection with what might might be going on that we don't see the the unclear yeah i love that so and i i definitely feel similarly in terms of like a divinatory practice can help you sort of get in touch with this kind of broader current or deeper picture or whatever's behind the scenes whatever kind of like way you want to phrase yeah. that um it could be a, even a psychological thing about you know being able to like get in touch with more of the information that is in your subconscious or whatever, however you like to think about it, it doesn't matter yeah for me i like to think about this as being like one 
big system like everything is this big connected system and we're part of it as individuals we're kind of also a species collective and like a, a pla- like there's just different iterations that you know mirror each other too um and oh, i yeah. think about this as being the machine mm-hmm. and so it's interesting uh you know to think about my my conceptualization of the machine versus the machine that's written about in wombat so can we yeah. talk a little bit about the operator's code? Sure. Um, that is a remake of one of my previous books. <laughs> okay. Operator's Code, the original book, I've always called it my most religious book. <laughs> and I don't think anybody ever understood why, but it, it was the best way I could think of of expressing a spiritual belief that I had been developing for a long time for myself, which was the machine that that basically we're all just a big part of a a big machine. We can't fully conceptualize Mm -hmm. whether we can see it or not. It's still working in the background. And it's like, it's something that we can only ever perceive parts of. We can never see the full machine. But I, I always kind of chalk that to I, I worked in uh, manufacturing for 15 years. So I was surrounded by machines for a really long time mm-hmm. and just spent a lot of time staring into machines as they ran. It- <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I was also um, kind of have a deep you know relationship with machines as like a concept. I was like an automotive mechanic for a while. And before mm-hmm. that, I had this kind of like a rational fear of machines, which is one of the reasons I wanted to like go into tech work and stuff to kind of so yeah maybe there's something there where it's um just that metaphor but i think that you know we could look at different places in philosophy like people talk about spinoza and the idea of the machine there so for you how does this concept manifest is this something that is like a fun thing to think about is it scary is it disgusting like how, how does this uh how does the machine like manifest to you most often I don't know. It's a it's a spectrum, to be honest, because I definitely see a lot of things that like we get swept up in that we don't have as much control as we would like. And some of it is rather disgusting and some of it's great. I think there are just different aspects that do different things. For me, the machine is just kind of I see it more as something to rebel against most of the time than something to embrace. But I think, again, I think that's because of the time I spent in the factory. And I think finding a way to manipulate how you're working within the works of the machine is like the most important work a person can do. Basically, that's that's what I view magic as is just finding a way to work yourself within the works of the machine. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's difficult to express. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Like I was doing some writing about this concept for the the album I'm going to be putting out soon. Mm -hmm. And there's this kind of like meditation where I talk about, you know, if you listen close enough to the machine, like it will tell you how to work it a little bit, like how you can put your hands on it and like make it do things. And like, that's kind of like what what I'm talking about there with magic and stuff. And like, yeah. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, that's kind of what operator's code is about. <laughs> All right. Fuck yeah. So what what is the concept of being an operator? Is is everybody alive an operator? Or does one have to like choose to be an operator or? 
I think everybody is an operator, but I think it's a different level of like everybody has different levels of acknowledging whether or not they are an operator. I think a lot of people are in denial that they are operators and just kind of go with the flow. Like no matter what, somebody's an operator is just whether or not you you're aware of it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm taking this class right now about simulation hypothesis, and I think that in that kind of paradigm, the machine is the simulation, right? And Mm -hmm. and acknowledging that you're in it is the first step to being able to play the game well or whatever. (laughs) So yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. I don't know. I've always disliked the metaphor of the like player character versus the non-player character that I've problematic. It's very problematic. It it takes a lot of like autonomy away from the people that are supposedly non-player characters. It's like most of the people I know in my life are NPCs in in those terms and it's like those people have autonomy. They're they're they they exist. They are players. It's just they play differently. Yeah, and I think that what we see emerging out of that is just the same kind of thinking that you see in any kind of like religion right where it's like yeah oh well we have we're the ones that are going to heaven <laughs> like you guys are all sinners or you guys yep. are all non-player characters <laughs> like yeah. i don't know exactly so. exactly exactly that's why i say everybody's an operator is just acknowledging what level of operator you are uh, it takes a lot of internal work to find that level of operator yeah so so the operator's manual these suggestions that are made how closely do you think we should follow them Oh, um, I don't know. A lot of them are kind of almost my view of how an oppressive culture would work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, basically, I think a lot of people should do the opposite of what this stuff says. Yeah, that's what I was kind of picking up on there. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like a warning. Like this, Or this is like the official line about how you're supposed to live your life in the world. Yeah, but it's not necessarily like there. We see that there's a lot of holes in its logic and places where it's like, well, you can't get away from the machine anyway, so it doesn't matter. So why do you have to do that? Right. Like, yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's why a lot of the art, especially in the in the redone version, it's a lot of the art is kind of grotesque mm-hmm. and it's 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 slightly on the nose in places. <laughs> Yeah, I like it. So the sort of like main, I would say like theme, I guess, if that's the right word, is like the um a, a character, a sort of like humanoid character that has a sort of like, I guess it, it's a, a box, an empty box for a head or is that a, an empty screen or? I like empty box. Okay. Uh... It's like a container or some kind or, or like there's a there's some kind of a void is expressed there, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I as strange as it sounds, like all I thought about was once the face was removed, because that's the first step in the book is the face is removed from the body. Okay, that's right. Yeah, you're right. All that's left is a a void beneath it. There's like nothing beneath that. There's no organs. There's no no mind. No no skeleton. It's just a big empty hole. Yeah, no, I like yeah. that though. Like I in terms of like the conceptualization of self, I think a lot about it being a sort of hologram which is projected out and takes yeah. place like as an interaction in the world, but that might not necessarily have any like internalness per se. Yeah. On its own. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and and honestly, like thinking about it now, the only thing in in that series of illustrations, the only thing that ever happens with those holes as stuff gets jammed into it Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) 
at one point paperwork is getting jammed into it at one point it's a like a waterfall of meat (laughs) (laughs) yeah and like the meat was the fun part like that was I, i i point that one out as one of my favorites because it was from a 1970s meat cookbook I use the recipes for one page it, where the, the guy is eating his own hand. Looks grotesque. Yeah, and I use <laughs> illustrations, like pictures from the book as the 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 flow of meat going into his mouth. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really gross. I love it. <laughs> oh, that entire cookbook was gross. That was that was the most disgusting cookbook I've ever seen in my life. It was it was horrifying. It's interesting to go back and like look at old cookbooks and kind of see how dietary trends have have kind of shifted and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like one of my favorite things I found in like a Campbell's soup cookbook from the 60s was the meat pizza, where you just take a like two pounds of ground beef and throw cheese on it. And it's a meat pizza. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that sounds like something that keto people would eat now, honestly. Oh yeah, a meat pizza. Yeah. I'm here for. I'm kind of here yeah. for a pizza. It's. It was just. It's absurd to look at now. <laughs> you shouldn't have told me about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's. It's. It's just comparing it to how people cook now. It's absurd. It's just like yeah. a. It's just a a wad of meat with cheese on top. Very simple. <laughs> I'm. I can't stop thinking about wads of meat and cheese now. <laughs> have we? Have we covered all of these? All of these things. We've we've talked about the Operator's Code. We've talked about flight interpretations, a gallery of disparate parts, excerpts from the Asemic Notebook, Ramblin' and Tooth. Oh, we haven't gotten to We Ants yet. Last yes. but not least, We Ants. Yeah, we Ants. We Ants was a children's book I found at a used bookstore at the start. Fuck yeah. And I just went after it with a Sharpie over a couple of months. And it turns into little like ant, like it's, it looks like you're looking at like a little ant colony, like little ants have dug little holes into it. Yep. Yep. And like, that's, that's what I was really aiming for was I wanted to make the text look like the inside of an anthill for a lot of the pages. And I gave myself one rule with the book and that I could only use the words that were on the actual page on either side. I didn't allow myself to take from any other pages. Other than for illustration purposes, like I would take pictures from other pages and from other books, but never any words from somewhere else. Yeah, this is really cool. It, it worked out pretty well. Some of them are very interesting how they turned out. Doesn't necessarily read the best, but some of them I think are really pretty kind of poignant in a way. Like my favorite page is uh, I laughed when I did the anatomy parts page. It's, it's a diagram of an ant. And I just replaced all of the the words they'd use for the uh, the body parts. Like it's it's pointing to the antenna, and I I found windshield wipers. <laughs> the second part is pointing to their brain, and I it, I changed it to tongues. It's it's a fun thing to do. I think everybody should try out blackout poetry at some point in time. Maybe not quite on the as large a scale because I think that one turned into it was like seventy pages. There's a lot here. Yeah, I, I decided I was going to use every page from the book. Awesome. No, this is so cool. I love doing stuff like this. I'm curious. 
when you're doing blackout poetry, how does this feel different than doing like something like cut up poetry? I think it's a little bit more um, intentional. It's kind of figuring out how to just make a different text emerge from the layout of the page instead of like just taking random words out of a bag and trying to line them up. Mm-hmm. The words are already lined up. You just have to figure out how to change them into saying other things yeah yeah that makes sense you're you're leaving this sort of like spatial dimension alone and leaving that parameter fixed yeah i mean i will admit that there are a few spots in the book where i did move words from the page to another place but it didn't do that very often that was one of the looser rules i had for myself is i would uh like some pages i like cut the page in half and move the bottom side of the page to the top side Or I use like half of one side and half of the other side and put them together. Um, I used a Sharpie so I couldn't use both sides ever. Mm. Because the Sharpie soaked right through and it ruined the other side of the page. So I could only use one side of any given page. Yeah, this is great. I love the illustrations. I love, yeah, just visually and all of it. It's very, very cool. And like I said, I'm very happy with how a lot of the text turned out because it's just makes sense but doesn't make sense at the same time. And I also love the grotesque illustrations. What is this, like an ant eating a maggot baby? Oh, yes. Maggot with a baby's head. (laughs) Yep. I love it. (laughs) Yep, yep. That is, yeah. Because that was just a regular maggot until I did that. (laughs) (laughs) Until you improved upon it. (laughs) Yep. And oddly enough, a couple of the illustrations, I didn't make any changes to them. And they were already that grotesque. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been super fun, Eric. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you want to talk about? Is there anything you want to like plug or anything like that? I mean, I, I've been pretty quiet lately other than putting out Wombat. As far as plugs, I think people should go back and check out my uh, No Gods books, like the trilogy, because I'm pretty proud of that. I think a lot of your listeners might be pretty interested in those three books. Okay. Why, why do you think people who are curious about like Chaos Magic or other things like that might like them? Well, the first book, uh, The Damned Machine, was basically my book of magic. That was me kind of exploring my ideas of mundane magic, exploring ideas of just a lot of ideas, a lot of philosophical ideas I was having at the time. And then the the second book, Four Color Grimoire, is an exploration of comic books and pop culture as mythology and kind of an explorative mythology, essentially. And then an assemblage of disparate parts was magic and life through the lens of the collage and like the trilogy together kind of i would say expresses my broad philosophy on life and magic as best as i can right now and i think i think people would enjoy those yeah fuck yeah there's a lot of cool shit in there and people can also listen to you and i talk a little bit about that project i'm in another episode of this show i'll tell people what number that is when i figure it out yeah, I think we talked about Damn Machine, or did Four Color Grimoire come out by then? I can't remember. I think that we talked, I know we talked about No Gods, but I'm not sure if Four Color had come out. It's all a blur. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. <laughs> all right, fuck yeah. Do you have any questions that you want to ask me? How's the mixtape coming along? I know it's I have an entry for that. So Yeah, it's coming along really, really well. We're really fucking stoked about it. We got 
so many fucking cool entries. We're going to be using all the stuff that we got. Um, I mean, knock on wood, provided that there's no like file <laughs> format. What you know, right? There's so many different yeah. little moving parts and stuff. But oh, our yeah. intention is to you know use all of the great stuff that people submitted, and yeah, we're going to put it on Bandcamp, and it's going to be out on Halloween, the thirty first of twenty twenty three of October, twenty twenty three. Um, and yeah, it's. Yeah, very, very cool. And uh, so, I'm excited yeah. to hear it. I'm excited to hear the whole thing. Yeah, it's really, really cool. I do want to say thank you so much to everybody who contributed tracks to that and to people who contributed stuff to the uh, first Fuck Around and Find Out project, which was the zine. And that's available digitally right now for free. And there's a link to that in the show notes. And there will be a link in the show notes to the mixtape as well if this comes out after halloween which is possible we'll see how this october treats me <laughs> <laughs> all right well eric this has been super fun i really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me and everything no I'll, i'm always happy to fuck yeah <laughs> is there any like last thoughts or words you'd like to leave the listeners with any like advice about approaching magic or art or anything like that operating being an operant in the machine <laughs> i mean the best advice I can ever give people is to just do the thing. Like if you have an urge to get into magic, if you have an urge to get into art, just do the thing. Don't let anybody tell you you're doing it wrong if you're just like playing around and you're trying to figure your stuff out. If you're not hurting anybody and you're enjoying what you're doing, it's kind of hard to say that you're doing something wrong. Fuck yeah. I totally agree. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much to Eric J. Millar. You can hear another great conversation he and I had in episode 41, Pop Oracular Vernacular and No Gods But My Own with Eric J. Millar. He has a bunch of cool stuff out there, which I encourage you all to check out. After we stopped recording, Eric and I chatted a bit about Fuck Around to Find Out Part 2, The Green Mushroom Project and We the Hollow Digital Mixtape, and he talked a bit about how he's able to make such a high volume of work, because there really is a lot. And it's pretty simple. He just loves the process of creating. I really like the idea of being an operator as it relates to the machine, and I like the idea of having a code for that. The idea of having a code comes up for me in a lot of places, actually. I've been doing some writing about magic and kink and other stuff along these lines recently. I've also been thinking more about simulation hypothesis as a chaos magic paradigm, which plays into this idea of the operator's code for me, too. I'm working on putting some stuff together to present about that at some point here. We might even talk a little bit about it more here on this show. Uh, let me know if simulation hypothesis as a chaos magic paradigm is something that you're interested in hearing more about. You can reach me at luxocultpod at gmail.com or at luxocultpod on Instagram. Don't forget to check out the other awesome shows we have available on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. We have Administrism, Grognostics, Primordia, Ad Hoc History, Smuts Up, Unearthing Paranormalcy, XV Planis, and now Camera Occulta. Very cool stuff. All right, let me give you a little bit of an update about what we have going on with the Green Mushroom Project before I send you off with a track from Anne Historic, who you can hear on episode 37, Process versus Product and Hyper Sigil Cassette Tapes with Adam Matlock, aka Anne Historic. This is also Sound Magic Part 4. I actually stopped naming the Sound Magic episodes because it's topic that I discuss so often on this show that they would all maybe be called sound magic or there'd be a high number of them. So 
Uh, yes, if you're looking for more in the Sound Magic series, uh, look no further. There's probably going to be Sound Magic discussed in many of the episodes. Anyway, I'm very stoked for the initialization ceremony that we have planned for Friday, January 19th, this year of Our Lady 2024, which we are calling All Out of Bubblegum. It's going to be the official kickoff for the Project Specs working a magical project that we're going to be doing to help us see through all the propaganda and other bullshit. It's thematically based on the 1988 film written and directed by John Carpenter, They Live. Shout out to Frater Damiana and Yarmarid and Guillermo X and everybody who's been putting specs together and to those who are going to be enchanting glasses or sunglasses with the Project Specs sigil. There are some other things we have going on which will dovetail nicely with all this, including chats about logical fallacies hosted by Joy and some other stuff about material analysis, which I'm hoping to convince Guillermo X to facilitate. He and I have been talking about it, so fingers crossed here. Shane Shadow Eater will share his thoughts about men's work circles, initiation, archetypal journey work, and that fucking shadow, his words, on Friday the 26th of January. And on the 2nd of February, I'll be hosting another chat about the personalized approach to conducting planetary magic I've been working on for the last couple of years. I'm calling it Zodiacal Pathworking. I've been playing with some new components that I'm excited to share. Join us also for Rune Study Group, hosted by Lavender, 23 Bibliomancy, 24 Cinema Score, hosted by Armid, where we hang out and make fun of campy old horror movies on the 24th. Uh, lots more to come as well. As always, these fun and free activities are open to anybody, I mean, unless we've like had to ban you or something, and hosted on the Green Machine Discord server. Uh, greetings to the whole pocket wizard family there. Cheers. You can find Lexicult, Hello Void, and other merch available at Illumin Industries, which is my Etsy store. Items will be printed on demand using the most eco-friendly options I could find and shipped directly to you at pretty close to cost. And there's some fun stuff in there. Uh, the Hello Void design that I have for the pod was actually made by the same person who did the very dope artwork for the Mycocultus working, which you can hear all about in the previous episode before this one. And that is, of course, T. Grady, aka Mirth and Woe on Instagram. If you like the show and you're into what I've got going on over here, you can support it on Patreon. Uh, making this thing is a pretty wild amount of work, especially for just one person, but it does mean a lot to me to be able to do it. Thank you so much to the people who are making that possible by giving on Patreon or buy me a coffee, and to those who are supporting the show by spreading the word. Tell your lab assistants and undergrads about it. Tell your students and everyone in the administration about it, too. Tell your esteemed and your hated colleagues about it, and your friends and enemies and frenemies, too. You can also post about it on social media or write a positive review. Both of these things are super helpful, so thank you so much to those of you who are doing so already. And yes, don't forget to smash the shit out of that follow button or alarm button or whatever the hell it is on your app so that you can get updates when a new episode comes out. Alright, let's do some listener mail shoutouts! <laughs> All right. First off, I'd like to say shout out, greetings, and a big thank you to everybody who is participating in the Audiophilia experiment. The track that we're putting together is really picking up steam, and I'm really excited to see how things will go. If you're one of the people who are participating and you missed the deadline for the first round of rituals, fret not. Me and the others have picked up some momentum for you, and feel free to jump on in when you are able. 
shout out to Alexi on Instagram. Cool to talk about hyper sigils and Warhammer and stuff with you. Cheers. Very cool. Shout out to Susan. Thanks so much for listening and for the kind words. Greetings to George. Glad you're enjoying the guests and all the different perspectives. I feel really lucky to be able to talk to so many cool people for sure. Thanks to Snorri for sharing your thoughts about your recent work. Very interesting stuff. It's cool to see those intersections there. All right, and shout out and much love to everybody who's been writing in who I did not mention. Uh, hard to keep organized and everything, but each one of the missives are important and cherished. Busy though I am, I do appreciate all of you taking the time to reach out, so thank you. All right, I'm going to leave you all with the track A World Behind Doors by Anne Historic. But first, I want to remind you all to resist with the Green Mushroom Project Statement of Resistance. Resist. Resist by maintaining sovereignty of the self. Resist by maintaining love of the self. Resist by maintaining fierce loyalty to love and pleasure. Resist with acts of radical kindness. Focus on the path to better times. Fuck yeah. Alright, thanks so much to Eric J. Millar for joining me, and to Mademoiselle Vondredi as well. Thanks to everybody who contributed to Fuck Around and Find Out Part 2, The Green Mushroom Project, and We the Hollowed Digital Mixtape. And most of all, thanks so much to you for listening. Much love. This is Lux Estrada, reminding you to stay strong, and stay fucking curious. Here's World Behind Doors by Anne Historic.
Thank you. I don't know. You can cut that, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, fuck you. Yeah. I'm going to stop recording before I get even more awkward. <laughs> I, I never know how to finish stuff. Lexicult is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Do you love horror movies, the occult, and the satanic panic? Well, at Camera Occulta, that's all we do. We will watch the movies so you don't have to, and then shit talk about them for an hour. Join us when we get around to it. Me, Pythia, and occasionally Luke, for a show that is strictly about the occult representation in film. 